The following sermon is by Stephen Tillis, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Steve. Church, let's take our Bibles this morning This morning, and turn to the Old Testament book, 2 Samuel chapter number 7. Those of you that are visiting with us, or if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, there is a Bible in the pew back in front of you. And uh, just like many books, uh, you'll open the first few pages, you'll find a table of contents that lists all of the books of the Bible and where you can find that page number. This is in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel, chapter number 7. The large numbers uh, are the chapters, the small numbers are the uh, reference verses. And so today we're in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1 through uh, 16, well, we'll probably read 17 together. So let me read this for us and then see what the Lord has to say. Second Samuel 7, please follow along silently and read the Scripture as I read it out loud for us. Now it came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all of his enemies that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent of curtains. And Nathan said to the king, go and do all that is in your mind for the Lord is with you. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and say to my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one who should build me a house, a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day, but I had been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep and to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And then notice here in the end of verse number 9 all the way down to verse number 16, uh, you might find eight or ten promises here that will begin with the phrase, I will. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men." But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from me before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all of these words and all the visions, so Nathan spoke to David." 
Brothers and sisters, uh, this time of year, we always, or generally in the month of December, we follow the Advent, which comes from the Advent calendar or the lectionary. And now the word lectionary simply means reading. And so we follow a certain set of readings around this time of year that follow as we think about hope and joy and peace and Christ leading up to the first Advent, the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And part of the wonderful thing about following these lectionary readings is that not only for Emmanuel Baptist Church, all of us gathered here today, but we follow these readings in Scripture because our brothers and sisters from multiple denominations all around the world, those true followers of Jesus Christ, not just our small community, but the community, the greater community of believers all around the world, they are reading the exact same texts as we march our way toward the Christ and His first coming. And so all around the world today, brothers and sisters are reading 2 Samuel chapter number 7, verse 1 through verse number 16. And there are a whole bunch of preachers just like me around the world that all week long thought, really? i got to read an Old Testament text for Christmas Day? Can I not have something a little simpler like Luke 2, Luke 1, John 1, Matthew 2? But the text takes us all the way back to 2 Samuel. And somehow, the lectionary reading or the reading of God's Word for this day, we got to get our, ourselves all the way from 2 Samuel to the babe in the manger and to the cross and to the resurrection. And so you pray for me. We'll, we'll be done by 4 o'clock, I promise. All right? No, I'm just messing with you. I'm just messing with you. How in the world? You might be visiting here today and you're thinking, I, I really, like I came here to hear about like Christmas and coziness and we're going to feel good and we're like drink eggnog and have a party and open gifts, right? And now you're just reading something, like it's almost like it's just a disparate text. We just pick it out of the Old Testament. What in the world does this text in 2 Samuel 7 with David wanting to build God a house, what possibly could that have to do with the coming of the advent of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me give you just a little bit of background and then just a couple of points from the text today and we'll see if we can put it together. Brothers and sisters and all of you that are here today, maybe even visiting with us, and I see some families out here, let me just remind you that the Bible is one cohesive book. It wasn't slapped together by a bunch of people. That it's, not, it's not an anthology. It is not something that you just open up and you close your eyes and you pick a verse and you say, that's the one. No, from the beginning to the end, from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, it tells one great story about how God created the world and He created human beings and He put them in a garden and He said... I love you and I'm going to create you so that you'll worship me and love me and follow me and that you'll spread my fame throughout the whole world. And what happened in Genesis chapter number 3? Adam and Eve messed the whole thing up for every one of us in here today. Every man, woman, boy and girl can look back and if you're going to blame anybody, just say, Adam, you did wrong. But you know what? We do wrong on our own behalf, don't we? We can't just blame Adam. We have to blame ourselves and say, yeah, I fall short of the glory of God. I sin. I fail. I come short. There's things in my mind and things in my actions and things with my words that happen, and I know that those aren't right. 
God created a perfect world and put Adam and Eve in the garden and then they sinned and then God provided the rest of the Bible as a way to bring us to redemption. And so we follow the storyline all the way through the Bible as we eventually get to the Messiah who is born in Bethlehem, who is God's Son. He is both God and man in one body so that He can deliver us because only God can do that. And He can identify with us because only man can do that. And He goes to the cross and He dies and He's resurrected again. He ascends into heaven and one day that same Jesus will come again in like manner as you saw Him leave and He will redeem all of us who put our trust in Him. Amen? That is the story that we go and we tell on the mountain that Jesus Christ has been born. Genesis chapter number 3. The Bible says that one day... Uh, your seed and the seed of the evil one, Satan, will have this clash and this battle. And so the rest of the Old Testament unfolds and you're always asking the question, who's the seed? Who's the righteous one? Who will deliver us from all of the evil of the world? And so on goes. And you think maybe it is Noah because the Bible says in Genesis chapter number 6 that the people of the world did evil continually and God said, I'm really kind of shaken as to whether I should have ever created human beings. They always do wrong. And the Bible says that one man, Noah, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Why? Because he believed God. And so God pours out His redemption on the ark through Noah. And at the end of the Noah story, you might be beginning to think, Noah is the promised seed, but Noah plants a garden and gets a little tipsy and does wrong. And by the time you get to Genesis chapter number 12, you're thinking the whole world is full of sin again. And in chapter number 11, all the people of the world build this edifice and they try and get to as high as they can to God. And they say, and they beat their chest and they say, we will make a name for ourselves. And God destroys all of that. And in Genesis chapter number 12, verse 1 through 3, He finds this lowly nobody in a place called Ur. You are Ur that nobody's ever heard of. And he says, I will make a great name out of you. Oh, now we're starting to get somewhere. Divine irony, my friends. All of the people of the world want to make a great edifice and make a great name for themselves. And God says, I'm going to lay you low and I'll make a great name out of somebody who is in nothingness. And Abraham is promised by God that one day he'll have a son. And when he's a hundred and his wife is ninety-nine, and the book of Hebrews says that her womb was like a dead person, pretty strong language, God does a divine miracle and gives them a son, Isaac. And the Bible says that God begins to work. And so we have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And by the time you get to Genesis, you have Joseph and you have the people of God who go down into Egypt and they're drawn out of Egypt. And so by the time they come out of Egypt, we have several hundred thousand believers or people or Israelites who God has made a promise to. And they begin to sin and fall down and come short of the glory of an almighty God. And so where God was blessing the nation, now God drives it all the way back to to one particular person in his family. And he says, you know what? One day what you really need is a king. You need a king who will rule over you in love and kindness and grace, who will dispel of the wicked and establish the righteous. And so I am going to bring a king, and his name is David. 
Now wait a minute, divine irony shows up again right here because Samuel goes to anoint the king. And do you know he goes to Jesse's family and he says, bring me all of your boys, I'm going to anoint the king. And so Jesse parades all of these boys in front of Samuel and he says, nope, 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 nope. And they're all football players and basketball players and brilliant scholars. And finally Samuel says, do you have anybody else? Yeah, i got to run out there in the field watching sheep. And Samuel says, why don't you bring him here? And David is so small that by the time he ends up fighting Goliath, he is, Saul tries to put his armor on him, and David can't even hold it up. And in fact, he takes off the armor and he says, no, I don't need the armor of men. I need the power of the living God of heaven. And so you might have anointed a king from the strong and the best. But in God's divine irony, He reaches down to the lowliest and He anoints a king for Himself. And that King David, He will rise up. He will defeat all of the enemies. Peace will come through Him. He will establish greatness for the children of Israel. And then we find ourselves in 2 Samuel chapter number 7, this all-important chapter of the Old Testament. And David says in verse number 1, he says, look, peace and safety has come to us. God has brought this. And I have noticed that I, the king, am living in a house of cedar, a beautiful house, and the ark of God. God is dwelling not even in a good house. He's dwelling in some tent somewhere that somebody has made. I will build God a house. But divine irony in this chapter comes over and over and over again. You'll find that there's the word house used probably 15 times in these 17 verses, and it's a play on words. Here's what David is saying. David is saying, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a temple. I'm going to build you a place to live. And God turns around and says, hey, listen to me. You don't build me a house. I build you a house. And when God uses the word for house in this chapter, do you know what it means? Not a temple, not a tent, not a home, not even a mansion. It means a dynasty. What's the first point this morning? Why don't you put that up there? When we think about divine irony in this chapter, we think about the idea that God builds our house. We don't build His house. Hey, brothers and sisters, hear me just for a few minutes. Won't be long today, but I, you need this, you, you need this message from the scripture. I needed this message from the scripture. We go around all the time with our, with our stomach and knots and ulcers and we, we, we try and work out our own things and we try and provide for God and we try and do all these things. And what we want to understand is that God is the one who is in the building, uh, building business. He is the one who is building our house, not vice versa. He is in control. He is sovereign. He is all powerful. Whatever is going on in your life, you need to walk away from here today to understand that the babe in the manger is still the ruler of the world. And you can take all of your sins and all of your sorrow and all of your fear and all of your consideration and all of your anxiety, you can take it to Him because He is the one that's in control, not you. I I dare say this is probably not the verse that we will use for a building project, right? Sometimes we want to build God a house. Hey, listen, God is the one building His house. He is the one doing the work. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to rest on our laurels or that we never have a building project or that we never uh, uh, spruce up or do all these kinds of things. But we want to understand something, that God is the one in control of building His house and building His dynasty and building His people. God is in control of your life. So why don't you let up just a little bit? 
And why don't you acknowledge Him when you leave here today as the King of your life? And why don't you be quiet about that for a moment? Sometime tonight or tomorrow. And think of all of the fears and all of the anxieties that are in your soul. And why don't you just peel off one knuckle at a time I know many of you have children and a little baby. Sometimes uh, it'll be, it'll be, they'll be, uh, I don't know, let's say almost 10 months old. And they'll have way too much stimulation in an evening because they went to a restaurant and grandma's in town. <laughs> I don't know, I'm just making something up on the fly. It might be time to go to bed and they've had 15 bottles and they are still, nah, I don't want to go to bed. They can't yet formulate words, but you know that's what they're saying by the screams that are coming. And then, isn't it the greatest, I was talking with a brother down here, isn't it the greatest feeling in the world sometimes where a, a child will, will just finally give up and they go limp? <laughs> NyQuil has a way with, no, I'm just messing with you. I'm just messing with you. I'm just, we're just going to get away from me in a hurry. No, listen. Finally, they give up, they go limp. And you lay, lay, the, lay the little body down there in the crib and let them go to sleep. And you know, we, we laugh and play about that, but isn't that the way that my heart is and your heart is? You cry and scream and fight and push all the time. And all God is saying is, why don't you just give up and lay in my arms for a few minutes? Just tonight. Maybe just tonight and just tomorrow. Would you do that for a couple of days? And, and, and just give up. And when you feel yourself starting to get tense again, why don't you give that up one more time and say, Lord, You're in control. I'm going to trust You. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to be obedient. But I'm going to trust that You're in control of what's going on in my life. You'll find the sweetest rest in all the world comes. God is the one who builds us a house. Quickly, in this text, you'll find that God is the one who bears our sins, not us bearing our own sins. Look back down at the text. Interesting verse. Look at verse number 14. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity... Well, wait a second. Is this talking about Jesus? And when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the son of, sons of men. There's a dual fulfillment in this text. Obviously, he's speaking here about his son Solomon who will come. And Solomon has his own sins and God judges his son for his sins. But the back half of the verse says, and he will be judged by the strokes of the sons of men. Hey, can everybody just for a minute, I know we don't have children's church today, but can you think of another Bible verse somewhere in the book of Isaiah, say maybe chapter 53, that says, and by his stripes we are healed. The double fulfillment is not just to look at Solomon paying for his own sins, but it is that one day Jesus Christ would come into the world and all of the sin and all of the shame and all of the guilt and all of the pain and all of the judgment that belongs on every human being in the world would be poured out on Jesus who deserved none of it. All of the stripes of the sons of men would be poured out on Jesus on the cross so that He that knew no sin could become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We are made perfect. We are made whole. We are made righteous. Our sins are washed away because the babe in the manger went to the cross and died for us. Amen. 
Ah, the greatest irony is not that we bear our own sins, not that we pick ourselves up by the bootstraps, not that we bear some heavy load, not that we do better and be better and strive harder and, 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 and do all of these kinds of things to earn the favor of God, but that we come broken before Him and we lay down all of our bootstraps and we take off our burden as Pilgrim did in the Pilgrim's Progress and we lay prostrate before the Lord and we say, if you don't help us, we are hopeless. And it's in that moment that God whispers into your ear in every story of the Bible that Jesus died for you. When you wake up tomorrow morning and you rip open those gifts and you drink some of that, uh, I don't know, whatever it is, hot chocolate or eggnog or uh, apple cider, whatever you drink, uh, hopefully it's one of those, right? Not something else. <laughs> And you're, you're relaxing and being with family and friends. Don't let it slip away that the joy that you find there is made possible because Jesus walked those cobblestone streets in Jerusalem bearing the heavy load of all of your sin. And He died for you so that you could have the joy. Isn't that what Hebrews says? And that's what we'll study next Sunday. Hebrews chapter 12, for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the pain. What was the joy that was set before Jesus? Every man, woman, and girl in this room and around the world that would believe on Him for everlasting life. Jesus loved you enough to die for you. The great irony of this chapter is that God bears our sins. And the last one is this. Look at the end of the chapter. Verse number 15 and 16. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Look, your house, whose house? Solomon's? No. He's talking about David and his descendant that would come to sit on the throne. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. How is David's kingdom going to endure forever? David will die. The Bible tells us in Acts that David knew that he was going to die. Your throne shall be established forever. Hey, God builds our house. He's the one in control. God bears our sins. And God becomes our King. Here's the greatest irony in the world. Listen, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount when He's teaching them to pray, now when you pray, pray this way, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. Do you know the only place in all the world where God's kingdom is not ruled by Him is in your heart. God has arranged humanity in such a way that you have the ability to either be the king of your life or the queen of your life or to bow down and let Jesus be the king. Which is it for you? Are you the king or the queen of your life? Or is Jesus? Let's let that sit with us this morning. God becomes our King. I hope that you'll allow Him to be the King of your life. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. This is the good, glad morning to lay all of that down and say, Lord, please come and be the King of my life. From this day forward, I believe you died and rose again. I trust you with my life. You can be the owner of all that I have. There are believers in this room and He's the King of your life in certain areas, but not in others. One day when that Jesus who's in the manger comes again, 
Yeah, he came as the lamb, he'll come as the lion. He came as the babe, he'll come as the king. He came lowly, he'll come in royalty. And when he does, and you stand before him, you say, I'm not sure, but maybe that's possible. If he comes again and you stand before him, and he asks you, who's the king of your life? What will you say? Better yet, how will you show him by the way that you've lived? Jesus said, many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied and done miracles and all of these wonderful things? Jesus said, depart from me. I never knew you. If Jesus were to pull back the pages of your life and read that storybook of your life, who on each page would have been the king of your life? In your relationships, in your work, in your family, in your own soul, in your desires, in every component and area of your life, is Jesus King. I told, uh, we did the Christmas musical. I'm finished right now. Listen to me. We did the Christmas musical a few weeks ago. And on that Sunday night, I shared with the group and I said, you know, uh, I think pastors might be the only people in the world that enjoy reading sermons, right? I'm not sure. Does anybody ask for an analog of sermons for Christmas tomorrow morning? Anybody got that? No? Okay. I have uh, I have a collection of um, it's called the world's greatest sermons for the last two thousand years, and I enjoy reading from every denomination and early church fathers, and uh, just I, I enjoy reading those sermons. And you know, as I plowed through those sermons, I just kept reading and reading. I was telling the folks, do you know that out of all of those hundreds and hundreds of the world's greatest sermons in two thousand years, I never came across any one of those that was completely about the incarnation and the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that strange? I would say to you today that this Christmas ought to be the greatest sermon that's ever been preached in your life. Why don't you believe on the babe that's in the manger? For He is the Christ on the cross and He is the risen Son of God. Make Him the King of your life. And if you're here and you're a believer, what's going on in your soul? that you're not adoring Him and worshiping Him and serving Him and making Him the King of your life daily. I want to encourage you to do that. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer just for a moment? Our Father, we love You. Thank You for Your people. We thank You for Your Son. Thank You for this beautiful music today. In just a moment, we will move to another part of our service. But I pray right now in the hearts of those that are here today, whether they came by choice or came by chance, they've heard about the goodness of Jesus. Would you please put the seed in their heart to believe on you and have eternal life? For we will love you and thank you for all that you do. In Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to Stephen Tillis, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh. For more information and free access to other messages, please visit us at ebcraleigh.com.